Good morning. We'll be looking at John chapter 3, kind of this middle section where Jesus has completed his conversation with Nicodemus. And now he and the disciples are making a move, at least in the way that John's describing the narrative, to a different location to do some different things. So let's start with John chapter 3, verse 22, and we'll go through verse 30. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anion near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your word that speaks to our hearts, our minds, and our souls. And it is this morning, O Father, that we pray and ask for your spirit to be at work here in this room, speaking to us, illuminating our minds as to what you would have us understand about you and your word about Jesus and our own walking with Jesus through this word. I pray, Father, that as we go forward this morning looking at this passage in the Gospel of John, that you would put your words into my mouth, that I would say nothing that is not from you, and that what is said will be for the good of those who hear it, and that you will draw all men to you. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So there's a couple of things about this passage that's kind of fascinating. At least it was to me. And one of the first ones is John's not as focused on geography as a lot of the other gospel authors are, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it always is interesting to me when John takes the time to include information about geography because he just doesn't do it very often. And so he starts out this passage, right? Jesus is in Jerusalem. If you remember back, we have to sort of step back a few moments. There at the end of chapter two, he cleanses the temple in Jerusalem as part of the feast and has this big confrontation with the Pharisees. Then chapter three, this first half of chapter three is all about Jesus and Nicodemus and Nicodemus coming to Jesus there in Jerusalem is the way that John presents it. And then we get to this 
second half of chapter 3 where Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem and they start heading north along the Judean mountainside. You'll hear other commentators talk about Jesus going south and southeast from Jerusalem, but that's because of an error in a few decades ago about placing this place, Anion and Salim, at near the Dead Sea and closer to the Qumran community there on the Dead Sea. But that's an inaccurate location. It's actually halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea along the Jordan Valley. And so Jesus left Jerusalem and he and the disciples start heading north. And instead of traveling one of the more common routes, which is to go down towards the Jordan Valley and travel along the Jordan River, or travel west like you're headed to the Mediterranean Sea, hit the plain of Sharon, and then travel north along some nice flat roads. Instead, Jesus decides to leave Jerusalem and travel north through the Judean mountains, which is a bit more of a arduous route because you have to go up and down quite a bit. But the biggest problem is that it takes you to Samaria. So Jesus leaves basically on his way back to Galilee. When we get to the end of chapter 4, he's going to be back in Cana, back in Galilee, and doing what becomes his great Galilean ministry period. And his way of getting there is to travel this northern route through the mountains that takes him through Samaria. And so over the next several weeks, possibly even months, Jesus travels through this central part of Israel on his way towards Nazareth and eventually Cana, where he turned water into wine. Now, this route takes him through the very heart of Samaria, as I said, and what is now part of the West Bank territory. And then, as it is today, this is not a Jew-friendly territory. This is not a place where you're going to receive a, a welcoming reception if you're Jews. Yet, Jesus isn't intimidated at all by this little jaunt through Samaria. It just doesn't seem to bother him at all that that's where he's going. So as Jesus is stirring the pot in Jerusalem and then taking his walk about through the Judean mountainside and hill country, John the Baptist is in this small village called Anion, which is located along the Jordan, not very far from the larger city of Bashan. And it is about halfway, as I said, between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus' route brings Jesus and John the Baptist very close to each other at this time. In fact, about seven miles apart at their closest location. It's almost like coming from here to, to Franktown, that close. And so it's likely that they had a meeting, although we don't see any recorded evidence of it. It's very likely that they did. And nonetheless, even if they didn't, they were so close to each other that John's disciples couldn't help notice how big the crowds were that were following Jesus at this time. And that's why we see this, what happens in the next paragraph, where John's disciples come to him and say, Jesus has got more people following him than you do. And they're disturbed by this because they can see it as the crowds following Jesus come to very close to where they are. And John's response to all this in verses 25 through 28 is very fascinating, very telling. I think it's very telling. John just reminds his followers that Jesus is the one, not him, John the Baptist. 
right? We all kind of understand that charismatic, powerful leaders develop individuals following them that are very loyal to them. And we can understand these guys are very loyal to John the Baptist. You know, and, and look, John was a firebrand. He was a lightning bolt, a lightning rod, right? Everywhere he went, he was blunt, as we would say, <laughs> in, in saying what he thought. And men who are blunt and say what they really think typically attract other men who are blunt and say what they really think and uh, like-minded individuals. And so these guys were loyal to John and they're like, look, this Jesus character who is not as much of a truth teller as you are. I mean, you can almost, I mean, like, you can almost imagine the conversation, the way they're thinking. He's not the firebrand like you are. He doesn't confront sin the way you do. And he's got more people following him than you do. This isn't right. You can almost hear it in their voices when they speak their words to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist just reminds them, look, Jesus is the Messiah, not me. My role was to go before him to tell you and to tell others that he was the one who was coming, the one that they should be looking to. And then John makes this statement in verse 27 that I think is the second most important statement in this whole passage. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John the Baptist grasps something that the Pharisees don't seem to get in all their confrontations with Jesus. No one can receive anything unless it is given to him or her by God. But the Pharisees never seem to grasp that. It never seems to sort of sink into them that, well, this just couldn't be happening if it wasn't from God. You kind of hear that in Nicodemus's voice, don't we? Back in the beginning of chapter 3. When he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Nicodemus was the exception among the Pharisees. They wouldn't even admit to something like that, even though it's obviously true. And we're reminded of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The same is true for you and I today, right? We don't got nothing unless God gives it to us. I mean, I sit down and read these things in the Bible and start to see things come out from the passages. But that's not because I'm smart. It's not because I can read the Greek New Testament or because I've spent a lot of time with Jonathan Edwards in his writings. It's, it's none of that stuff. Those are all helpful. It's because God opens it up and gives it to me, just like he does you. And the danger is, is we start to think we're hot stuff. I'm really smart. I'm really gifted. Well, yes, you are gifted, but it's because you were given a gift, not because you're special. And, I think it's just sometimes it's hard for us to remember that, that you, you got what you got because God gives it to you, right? And I'm not just talking about the physical stuff in life, right? It, the things that matter, 
like people who you really enjoy being with, real friends, real close intimate relationships, not feeling alone. Those are gifts from him that he's given to you, not because you're a magnetic personality. I mean, if it was up to my magnetism, I'd probably be magnetizingly attracting the wrong kind of people. And so he gives us good things, but it's, we got nothing unless he gives it to us. And part of our humility is to understand that and to acknowledge that everything good is a gift from him. We receive what God gives us. Pure and simple. I didn't believe in Jesus because I was so smart to see that Jesus was the Messiah and that I needed to put my faith in him. I did it because the Lord pulled back the veil covering my eyes to be able to recognize I needed Jesus. And if the Lord doesn't pull back the veil, I'm not going to see it. And neither is anybody else. That's exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Everything we get is a gift from him. But then he goes on to talk about how his joy is complete because Jesus is now coming into his own as the Messiah. And isn't that one of the real tests of someone's humility and, and trust in God? is that they can actually rejoice that someone is actually experiencing equal or greater success in the same fields or endeavor that is their specialty. I remember we talked about this one, or one of my uh, theology professors mentioned this one time. You know, what are the signs of humility? What are the true signs of humility? And he made the comment that one of them is that you can actually be happy for someone who's having more success preaching than you are. But the most important thing that John says is verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus has to increase. Here's where some things just started really popping out, and I'm like, wow, okay. This moment is the last time we hear from John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. Think about that. Here we're just in the third chapter of a 21-chapter Gospel, and John the Baptist never speaks again. Even in Matthew and Luke, he shows up midway and three-quarters of the way through the Gospels. But here, that's it. In fact, John the Baptist does not even show up again in any form in John's gospel, except for just a reference to him in chapter 10. That's it. As far as John's gospel is concerned, John the Baptist has come to an end. And then thematically from this moment on, Jesus just keeps increasing more and more. More miracles, more miraculous miracles than he's performed in this, these first three chapters more authority, more evidence of his messiahship, more revelation of his divinity, more followers, more enemies, more fulfillment of messianic prophecy, and more glorification. In essence, we could really look at these first three chapters of John's gospel as the introduction 
And from here on out, it gets real with John's gospel. Jesus just keeps increasing. And so what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, it's really kind of nice to see this and to understand it and to be given this gift of insight. But so what? Well, I kind of go back to the beginning where Jesus is walking this path along the Judean mountains. Okay, they're really not mountains. They're like tall hills. <laughs> this is a struggle for those of us. I should have covered this earlier, but you know, this is a struggle for us that live here at the foothills of the Rockies. You know, and you think about a mountain like, okay, it's at least 10,000 feet or it's not a mountain, right? Like for them, like, like 600 feet is a mountain. <laughs> and, and so these are... These are, you know, hills that Jesus is walking through. This path that he's taking on these hills of the Judean countryside takes him on a path near John. Well, are we walking a path with Jesus? I mean, he had people following him, people going with him on the path. So are we on walking on a path with Jesus? That's why I'm... You know, it's one of the motivations for me to say this morning that I wanted us to start praying as a church and start you individually. And when you gather as two or three or six or four or whatever, praying as a group for the Lord to reveal to us, what is it he wants us to go to next? Where is he taking us? At the very least, are you walking on a path that intersects Jesus's path? Right. At least do that. And then the um, second thing is like, do you recognize the source of all you have received, all that you have received, all that you are receiving, and all that you will receive? It's every good and perfect gift come from above. That's what James tells us in chapter 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Do you understand that us, as the believers in the resurrection, hoping in our own physical resurrection at some point in the future, that we are the first fruits. The church itself is the first fruits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that our good gifts come from above and we can enjoy them, right? I mean, we just got done with Christmas, right? I mean, like you get a gift. I hope you can enjoy the gift, right? I mean, sometimes you get a gift you don't really want. That's hard to enjoy. But when you get the gifts you want... You enjoy them. When our Father gives us gifts, He wants us to enjoy them. Right? So I guess maybe that's the fourth so what here. Are you enjoying the gifts that God is giving you? And then, can you enjoy the gifts He gives you that you don't want? Those are harder. 
at least they are for me, when he gives you a gift that you don't want? And can you enjoy it? That's just weird. How do you enjoy something you don't want? How's that work? Well, uh, here's the only way I know to reconcile this. This is what I'm trying to do even now is that he gives us a gift that we don't want and we have to acknowledge that that is from him and we have to receive it as a gift. But how can it be a gift if it's something we don't want? Because it's starting to conform us into his image and make us more like him. And that Romans eight twenty eight and 29 and 30 are exactly true that he creates good from it sometimes for us and sometimes for us and for others around us. And we can enjoy the good that he's going to create from it. And we can maybe not enjoy it so much as be at peace with knowing that this is from him and that he will only do what is good, even in unpleasant gifts. And then lastly... I don't know, this one's a little bit more challenging for me. I don't know if it's if it's that way for you. That Jesus has to increase and you and I must decrease. Being conformed into the image of Christ means at least in part that you and I become so much like Jesus that the line between him and us becomes harder and harder to distinguish. Wait a minute, I don't want to give up my uniqueness. I don't want to give up my individuality. Yeah, you do. How can I say this politely? There is no way to say this politely. Your uniqueness is not that great. (laughs) I just, I'm sorry. You... (laughs) You being much more like Jesus is a lot more attractive. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is an uncomfortable way to say it. There's no easy way to say it. There's no polite way to say it. I like you better when you're more like Jesus. And you like me better when I'm more like Jesus. And that line between him and us becomes harder and harder to distinguish as we are conformed more into his image. And sometimes that conforming into his image comes through good gifts or what we would define as a good gift. And sometimes it comes in the form of gifts that we would say we don't want. But at the end, I do want it because it makes me more like Jesus. It conforms me more to his image. I was with a someone recently. I don't think any of you would know this person. And... um you know, they were recounting to me an experience they had with the Lord. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to question whether that experience was real or not. I don't have any reason to discount or disbelief their, what they were saying. But that in this moment, the Lord revealed to them that they had three paths they could choose. One that was easy, one that was less easy, and one that was actually kind of hard. At least in their interaction with the Father, they believed he said to them that, You can pick either of the three paths you want, and I'm going to bless you no matter which one you choose. 
But if you choose the hard path, there'll be more fruit. And they, they explained to me they chose the harder path. And it was very unpleasant. And But it's, it's born fruit that could not have been brought to fruition if they had chosen the easy path. So there's this weird sort of paradox in the kingdom of God that the best things come from the hardest path. The most joy comes from the most difficulties. The greatest glory for Jesus comes from the most humiliating choices and paths that we can walk and the journey we can have. I know that doesn't fit necessarily into the broader culture that life is good and it's supposed to get better. But I'm just saying church history also reveals this to be true. Not just a theological idea we glean from Scripture without the Bible specifically exactly saying it in that way. We had the quote in your bulletins this morning from Hudson Taylor. I can promise you that Hudson Taylor chose the hard path. In fact, I would encourage you to read a biography of Hudson Taylor. It's worth it. And you understand, right? You want to understand how this idea of choosing the harder path bears the most fruit? Read the biography of Hudson Taylor in Lottie Moon. In fact, Lottie Moon's life as a missionary in China was what inspired Hudson Taylor to become a missionary in China. There would be no Hudson Taylor were there not a Lottie Moon. You know, maybe someday there'll be another preacher who wouldn't be a preacher to, if there wasn't for me. Maybe that'll work for me. Maybe that'll work out that way for me someday. I don't know. But the point being is still that church history shows us over and over that the difficult paths bear the most fruit for the kingdom of God. And you'd find it very difficult to find a path harder than that of Lottie Moon's and Hudson Taylor's. Adirondack Judson probably, I guess you could say in humanistic terms that Judson, Adirondack, no, not Judson, no, Hudson Taylor and Adirondack Judson, that, that he had, that Adirondack had a more difficult path as a missionary in Oh, south of China and east of Vietnam or west west of Vietnam. Cambodia, maybe something like that. His was pretty tough, pretty tough. His was so tough that he even reached a point where he would walk out into the jungles. Hoping a tiger would kill him. But what? <sighs> What Adam Rodden didn't know was that while in his depression, he had given up and walked into the jungle, hoping that one of the tigers would take him. There was a man following him with a rifle that was going to make sure no tiger touched. Adam Rodden Judson. And the fruit of that was an entire church that could have never existed had it not been for Judson. There... I'll call it Cambodia. That's not right. I don't think that's the right place, but we'll call it that. 
I mean, you know, that's not, I so far I don't see God asking us to go to that kind of level of hardship here. I, don't, I mean, I don't see it yet happening with any of us individually or as a church. But I just think that the harder path bears the most fruit. That's what church history tells us. So my encouragement to you is you have to decrease and Jesus has to increase. And that usually means an unpleasant path to get there. But it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it to be more like Jesus. And it'll be worth it to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So my prayer then this morning is very simple. O Lord God of heaven and earth, who is, who was, and who is to come, imbue us with this kind of desire to choose the hard path when you ask us to take it so that we bear the most fruit for you and become the most like you. Infuse us with the Holy Spirit power that gives a person perseverance like Lottie and Hudson and Adiron. And Lord, use us to bring and bear fruit for your kingdom so that we end up looking more like you. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.